0: microservices yeah yeah you break up your big apps into a bunch of little ones they talk to each other across a network with apis they autoscale if they get busy and so on we we get it at least at a high level well today on the data nuts podcast we discuss if you need to get microservices or not are microservices the way your company is probably going are the developers you support secretly working a way to make their application cloud native should you care PacketWishers.net, you can find this in all of our not shows about infrastructure engineering, or just search for Datanauts spelled like astronauts in your favorite podcatcher. You can follow us at Datanauts underscore show. I am Ethan Banks at EC Banks, and with me is the phenomenal Chris Wall at Chris Wall, who built a cloud-native microservices-based app that tells you if your beer is any good just by taking a picture. Joining us today, Brian Borham, Director of Engineering at WeWorks. Brian, would you uh, please say hi? Introduce yourself to the Datanauts audience. Hi,
1: yes. I am Director of Engineering at Weaveworks, and I've been delivering application systems in a microservices style since about 1995. I don't spend all my time programming. My main hobby is flying helicopters, so uh, that's a fun fact.
0: Yes, flying helicopters, that would be fun indeed. The closest I've ever gotten is I got to, to do a like a trial lesson in a Cessna, which was a gift from a a friend of mine uh, when I graduated from high school, which was really cool. But helicopters, I've never been in. So that is is really cool. Well, Brian, let's jump into the microservices conversation. Now, we've talked around microservices where it's come up as a topic and the context has typically been you kind of know what microservices are and then we've gone on. But we've never really had a show that really Talks about what microservices are all about, what cloud native is all about, and so on. So let's start at the top here to set the stage for people, Brian. What are microservices?
1: Microservice is all about breaking your system up into small pieces. So the basic idea, one one phrase is software that fits in your head is a microservice. It, it, it's a bounded domain. It's one area. So if you take our production system, we have a we have a user service, we have a billing service, we have a service that ingests data. We have a service that queries data. We break the system up into different pieces, and you can work on them separately, and each one mostly has its own uh, data store. So those are some of the aspects of microservices.
0: Okay, so I want to drill into that a bit. Let let me take an example of something, a common service that a lot of folks run, and I want to understand if if I could actually break this up into a microservice architecture. That would be DNS. So a DNS server, it seems like it does one thing and I couldn't actually break it down much further. Is that fair or or could I actually turn it into microservices? Yeah,
1: DNS is a pretty good example of a single microservice because it does one thing. It maps names into addresses. It listens on one port and it takes one style of request and gives one style of answer. So that's actually almost a kind of a perfect microservice.
0: Okay, so but then conversely, let's say I'm running a a mail system where there's a front end, there's ingestion with SMTP, there's outbound mail, there's, you know, maybe translation gateways into different mail systems, so I guess that's pretty old school. There's message stores and so on. I'm assuming that's an example of a service that could be broken up into a bunch of microservices.
1: Yeah, I mean if you log on to something like Gmail, you probably actually are hitting a dozen or or more microservices at Google, when it renders the page, it knows who you are. There's some kind of a service relating to your identity, your account, it knows what messages are in your inbox, it knows maybe there's a separate service that relates to the hierarchy, how you've categorized your messages, and then they put a bunch more things on there. They maybe they put adverts on there, maybe they you know, that's all separate services that all come together in one
2: page. Interesting. So you're talking about doing this sort of work since ninety-five. I'm relatively new to microservices because I felt like it was a relatively new topic. But it sounds like this is not the new hotness. It's a potentially <laughs> an architecture we've been doing for decades.
1: Well, it it was pretty radical back at that point. I went to work for one of the investment banks, and those places often have a lot to spend on technology. And um, <laughs> it was pretty heretical. Um, most systems were built around a centralized RDBMS in those days. You were lucky if you had a three tier system a lot of two tier just kind of a front end desktop client hitting a big back end database and that was your system mm-hmm. so yeah, we were pretty innovative or the the team I joined because they were already doing it when I joined was was pretty innovative um and we had we had separate services for like i say it was a investment bank it was a trading operation, so we had a a trade store we had market data store we had risk. Services.
2: We you know we broke things up that way. Got it. Well then I guess moving to something that is a little more modern, this topic of cloud native. Can you riff on that a little bit? What is cloud native?
1: Yeah. So the key thing when you talk about cloud native is is you you never know where your software is gonna run.
2: That Sounds is... problematic in and of itself.
1: <laughs> but, yeah. <laughs> so that's that's the key attribute of of the cloud right the cloud is just someone else's computer um and we turn that we turn that to a positive because it once you get over that thing that you you don't really know where your software is running you have to build your software to be resilient to suddenly waking up on a on a different environment so you have to build it in such a way that it can do that it can figure out how it's configured and get up and running without needing special tending without needing you know, a lot of environmental config. And then those attributes make it easier to scale things because you can just run multiple copies of the software. You can get resilience because it can just die and restart. You can scale things as long as your data store supports that. That's where cloud native is coming from, is is saying build your applications in such a way that they really don't care where they're running and they they can get up and running wherever they are in the cloud, and then that gives you a lot of positive benefits in in terms of scaling and resilience and speed of movement.
0: Hmm. All right, so let's connect microservices and cloud-native then. I mean, if I'm trying to run a cloud-native application, does that imply microservices? How are the two connected?
1: Yeah, well, so for maximum scaling, that would be the case. And the Cloud-native Computing Foundation, which I am somewhat involved with, their charter in fact states that they expect cloud native systems to be microservices oriented that's probably the the extreme end i think i would say a a service oriented system which has those properties that it can kind of run anywhere in the cloud is basically cloud native but if you want to build a bigger system you're going to really benefit from being microservices oriented in the cloud
0: okay well, let's talk about some of those benefits then. If I go to microservices, what are the benefits that I get? You've alluded to some of them, but let's, uh, let's dive in a little deeper. So the number one
1: benefit, I think, is speed of change. If you've broken your system down into little pieces, then you can change each of those pieces at its own speed. The opposite, if you like, of that situation, if you think of a big monolith Anytime anyone wants to change the smallest piece, they have to put that change together with all the other software in the monolith. They have to rebuild the whole thing, probably retest the whole thing. And then releasing it is a big event because everything changes on the day you release. You think about it, you've, you've broken everything down. You You really free people up, especially if you've got like multiple teams working on different parts of your software. One of them can be releasing once a week, maybe another one, has a lot more complicated system, part of the system they release once a month, maybe somebody else releases once a day. These things can all happen as long as those microservices continue responding to the same contract, the same API on the service, then uh, they they can be released. They can make their changes at their own pace. That's kind of speed of change, freeing up different parts of your organization to release their part of the whole system at their own pace.
0: Well, it feels like you're reducing your fault domain as well. In other words, your risk profile is quite different because you're only dealing with one small piece of the puzzle. And it's kind of like gears meshing when you talk about APIs like that, as long as that API still responds, as long as you can still put a tooth in that gear and turn it it's going to work even if something's changed on the inside as long as it responds like you expect you're good and so your your risk to the overall system being impacted is much smaller now because you're only dealing with a one small set of the application at a time
1: yeah i think i think you have to take care not to overstate that case if if you put a broken component in to a whole system then likely the whole system might be broken you know it 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 sort of depends how key that component is. It's certainly true that that something on the periphery, whereas in a big monolith, one part failing could probably take the whole program down. Uh, in a in a microservices environment, one part that's in a rarely used area is just going to fail on its own, and no one's going to care about that. But. Uh, you know, typically these systems have core microservices, like, like for instance, dealing with user identity. And if that service is down, the whole thing's going to be down. So, yeah, it's nuanced, the, the that particular point.
0: And, and, and then another benefit of microservices that I think of is, uh, is scaling. You talk about that.
1: Well, yeah. If you can run your system in these little pieces, and if you can run multiples of those little pieces... That's fantastic for scaling because you don't well let's let's again think of think of a monolith if I can run two copies of my monolith that's great but if if each one takes you know three hundred gigabytes to run or or something like that then i I need that size of machine i need I need a certain number of that size of machine to scale if i've broken it down and there's there's a piece that runs in fifty gigabytes and a piece that runs in ten gigabytes and i can I can multiply those pieces up. Then I can I can scale across smaller machines, or I can scale with like a couple of small machines and a couple of big ones. You know, that it, it frees that up. All of that is dependent on you being able to do that. And, you know, you can't just magically take software and run two copies of it. You need to have the knowledge that they can run in parallel, and that's typically done by ensuring that the the software itself doesn't hold any state. That the the state is all persisted through some underlying store that might be a traditional database, that might be a, a, a key value store, something like etcd, that, that might be um, a NoSQL store, you know, like Cassandra or DynamoDB. doesn't really matter exactly which style of store, but the, the key thing is that your service software that, that we're talking about scaling needs to not be holding any state.
0: Mm. So for example, I'm an HTTP client coming in and talking to a web server, the session state would need to be kept on the back end, not tied in directly to the server that I'm speaking to at any given moment. Because the next moment, my next request could go through to a different instance.
1: Yeah, that what you tend to do there is kind of keep all the web session state in one web server, and then it fires off more requests. That's kind of the style of microservices. That you come into one service and it fires off you know maybe ten other requests, to ten other services, and then maybe a couple of them fire off five more requests, and you really you're really multiplying the amount of work that's going on and again, if you have multiple machines, if your aim is to scale, then that actually makes it easier because you can because you're, you're breaking down the work you're firing it off to all these different places, and they can all be running in parallel
0: well, if you've got these benefits then uh, what, what would the downsides of microservices be
1: well one of them follows directly from what i was just saying if the way you get stuff done is by firing requests over the network that is a lot slower than calling a function in memory if you can fit your entire system into one process and every call from one piece of the system to another piece of the system is is a few machine code instructions then that's literally a thousand times faster so you, you kind of have to want that benefit of being able to distribute the work across machines. The minute you need to distribute the work, you need to go across the network. You're going to pay that price anyway. So you kind of need to be there before you get back these benefits of, of working in a microservice style. It is, it is undoubtedly the case that taking a, a well-performing system where everything happens in memory and spreading it across
0: a network will make it a lot slower. That dang network. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to leave it alone, but actually the point I'll make Chris on this is it goes back to application design. I mean, if you you need to be smart about where your microservices are and which microservices calling to what other one, I mean, you remember a show we did quite a while back talking about this where the issue was tied up in two different microservices. One wasn't, they weren't even in the same public cloud. They was calling all the way to a different public cloud. I want to say in a completely different geography that introduced many milliseconds of latency into the calls that affected the whole transaction for that app. No, I remember that. It, that's kind of leading me to
2: a thought around success with microservices, because it's not really a silver bullet. So I'd imagine, Brian, in your experience, are there some organizations just, that just intrinsically do better or worse with microservices? You know, is this just a trendy thing? Or, or, or what are some red flags to say, like, oh, this is probably not going to work because the organization itself isn't suited for it?
1: Yeah, I think I'd agree it's, it's a trendy thing. Your organization has to be a certain size. I think the real benefits are, are from scale and, and decoupling teams. So if you've only got two people or three people, or maybe even one person in your team, that's your whole team that runs your whole system, microservices are, are just going to be a cost. You know, you're not big enough to get into the place where you get those benefits. So that's an easy piece to, to knock off. You know, you, you need to be of a certain size of organization where you're you're dealing with thousands of requests. So you need to scale your compute and you have several people, four, five, six, up to thousands of people such that they can form into sub teams and they can independently work on, on different microservices. That's an easy aspect. I think if your organization is dysfunctional, you know, if your people spend a lot of time arguing with each other and try to solve arguments by um, filing bug reports or, or something like that, then, then again, microservices are not going to fix that. They're probably just going to make it worse. Well, you know, that said, the point that everything goes through an API can help to resolve arguments. It's, uh, at the end of the day, you can, you know, you can look at the bytes that went in, the bytes that came out, and you can you can resolve it very clearly that way. But yeah, you know, you have to have a certain kind of cooperative spirit and a and a, a belief in your fellow co-workers that, that if they are like I said earlier, if they're if they're updating their service at a certain speed, you have to trust that they're competent, that they have the right kind of continuous integration testing procedures in place and so forth that you can depend on them to put reliable releases into, into production. So, yeah, I, I think really small orgs and really dysfunctional orgs should probably stay away from microservices. But um, moderate to huge-sized will probably, probably see good success, I would say, if they can cooperate. <laughs>
2: My takeaway is that there's still a body of knowledge required to build a scalable microservice. I, I guess it's kind of redundant, but you know, microservices in general, the architecture—it's not a panacea for solving challenges for performance, scaling, whatever. So you still have to—you still have to know what you're doing at the software layer. It's just the architecture can lend itself to performance and scale and whatnot. Ethan, how about you?
0: Brian made the point that, uh, you know, one microservice failing can still take down the whole application, which I thought was important because some people think, oh, I'll break it up in microservices and everything will be more resilient. You know, I'm having a problem in one place, you know, means my whole application is not going to fall over. Well, that's true. But as Brian pointed out, one key component of your application could be found in that microservice and that key component falling over could actually break everything. It's just the breaking is going to feel a little bit different rather than, you know, a blue screen of death or, you know, something like that. Now you've just got one service down, but your app as a whole isn't working. Important thing to keep in mind when doing application design.
2: Okay, so I now know that microservices are not new, but they're trendy, and that cloud-native tends to be more new. I think we've got our head wrapped around some of these terms. Let's dive into the environment that's running in microservices. So, Brian, we, we talked about some, some of the earlier applications. Well, at least Ethan tried to talk. He, he loves to use email a lot, and he's got a thing <laughs> for uh, sending messages. I spent a lot of his...
0: time with email systems. <laughs> I'm
2: sorry. <laughs> it's like, sh- show me on the monolithic architecture where the email touched you. So there are a lot of those types of apps out there. Microservices is obviously trying to drive a wedge in all the, the little things that are going on under the covers of the app. Let's talk about transitioning from monolithic to microservice. Is this a lift and shift kind of thing, like moving a workload to a different environment, or do you have to kind of slowly tear it apart and rebuild it piece by piece? Yeah, I think
1: personally, I am never a fan of you know complete rip and replace. I've seen too many projects just you know maybe get the rip part done but not the replace part the uh piece by piece works because you can you can take a working system you can identify a sub part of that that's independent that deals with one domain you can put that behind an api so it can stay in the monolith it can uh, be working that way and then you can break it out across a service boundary It's basically the same API, only now you're calling across to a different service, and there's your first microservice, and you can continue that way for a while. Uh, Most big systems, you know, systems that have evolved over time tend to get a bit gnarled up inside, a bit kind of intertwined, and that makes it hard Mm -hmm. to tear pieces out. So yeah, you probably get the first one quite easily, and the second one maybe not so easily. And by the time you've done the low-hanging fruit, then you have the bigger problem that you you need to dig
2: into those kind of gnarly, entwined bits in the center of your monolith. It's not just a linear scale of effort. It's there are like easier portions and then harder portions to tackle. I would assume in most cases.
1: Yeah, I, I, I guess I guess I'm kind of making assumptions here, but I, I've seen a lot of seen a lot of software that sort of meets those. <laughs>
2: properties, well, yeah. Because otherwise, it, we can't always use the consulting answer. It depends. So some assumptions are are certainly welcome in this case. That makes sense.
1: But uh, yeah, I mean, the thing is that you you kind of don't get the benefits from doing the the low hanging fruit. You know, doing a couple of easy bits maybe gets you tick the box that we're now doing microservices. But it it doesn't. You know, the the interesting parts of your system, the parts that you really love to evolve, are are probably in in the core so the the next thing that, that a lot of people do is is they they try to break off a uh, new functionality i mean typically the business side of the organization is pressing for a couple of completely new features that can they can probably be implemented in microservices you know once you've got the basic framework in place and a, a lot of people carry on that way i kind of meet people at conferences and so on a lot of a lot of tales are kind of going that pattern that that people still have maybe half of their original monolith sitting there, but they're pretty happy about all the new pieces that they can put in place alongside that. Yeah.
0: Well, Brian, I, I want to talk about orchestration engines. So, I mean, if I've got, for, for however far I've gotten in my microservice transition, uh, orchestration engines seem to be part and parcel of the conversation. We've talked at length on this show about OpenStack and about Kubernetes. How did these play into uh, my, a microservices deployment?
1: Well, yeah, you kind of give yourself a problem by using microservices, which is now you have like five different things or, or 30 different things you need to run and you've you've scaled it. So there's there's five copies of them. So you have a hundred different things to run. What runs where? That's essentially the, the thing that orchestration engines solve for you. Something like Kubernetes, you just give it all hundred things that you want to run and it will run, you know, six of them on this machine and two on this machine and five on that machine and it will watch them if one of them dies it'll start another one you can scale up scale down through your orchestration engine so those are all the things that that you delegate to an orchestration engine
0: and then maybe i should tie that in with containers as well so i think of OpenStack as good with vms and containers to some degree kubernetes seems like a container specialist do i need to be looking at containers or is it is that kind of what folks are going to because of the packaging that lends and so on
1: yeah, so let's kind of take this in two bytes. One thing that we hadn't brought up so far is is that, that take, taking a step to microservices very often helps people out because it lets them bring in different technology. So let's say they, they were working exclusively in PHP or in Python or, or in Ruby. You know, it doesn't matter where you start from. Your monolith, typically the, the only way to work was to whatever you needed to build, it's built in the same language as everything else. But maybe you, maybe you have a function that can be done really well in C++, or maybe you've hired some people who are experts in Go. You know, maybe they want to use a different technology. Putting that behind a microservice, uh, behind a service boundary, is perfectly doable, whereas putting it in the same program is almost impossible. Okay, so I, a little digression into the concept of people wanting to use multiple different technology stacks in the same system. And now containers really come into their own because when you have those multiple technology stacks and, and some things are running PHP and some things are running in Go and some things are running in Ruby, whatever you've decided to bring in, containers take away the problem that you would otherwise have, which is you need to install those stacks on each machine. The container brings its whole environment with it. You know, everything you need to run, whatever that's inside the container is, is packaged up with it. And they do that in a, a nice, efficient way by layering on top of common base layers. So yeah, the containers kind of come into their own where you have that multiple different technologies where you could take a bare machine and, and run five containers on it that really could be five different technology stacks. And you have zero work to do to get those all installed because it's all inside the container.
0: Hmm. Dare I ask, uh, unikernels? Whoa. <laughs> uh, yeah that's um
1: i guess i don't know unikernels um i mean i'm familiar with the with the concept I, I i've really never seen anyone do that in anger um yeah it's it's perfectly it's perfectly feasible and in theory
0: that reduces your overheads give you a more efficient system uh, i haven't seen it in in the wild It doesn't feel like they're taking off, even though there's certain advantages of efficiency as well as uh, that attack service. You know, I think there's a strong security story there. I just, that's why I brought it up. I was just curious if you'd uh, noticed much uptake, and and I guess we have our answer.
1: Right. I think certainly my fear would be that the debugging experience is quite negative because, you know, one of the... One of the things I often like to do when I have a problem is is kind of SSH into or or somehow exec into the environment and uh, take a look around. And in your unikernel, there's nothing, right? There's there's no shell, there's no kernel, there's no there's no processes. There's you can only look in from the outside. And and probably a whole new generation of tools can evolve to to work in that environment. But that's the piece that I kind of fear. Maybe, maybe irrationally, but there you go. That's me.
2: No, that's pretty common. You you build the thing first, and then you build the tools and the telemetry to go around the thing Mm. second, because it tends to be, you know, you're so close to whatever the you know the solution is that you're building that you forget other people need tools for it as well, uh, because you're trying to solve one thing. I wanted to bring up the idea of service discovery. I know that's Mm -hmm. used in microservices because each service or each microservice doesn't really know about one another necessarily, and, and the, the health of one another, and that kind of jazz. So and we talked about DNS earlier as, as an example of a microservice. Is service discovery just a fancy way of using DNS to say, hey, I'm here, or, or is it more than that?
1: Yeah, people use that in, in different ways. But certainly, if you have these independent parts of your system running, then somehow one piece needs to find another piece to talk to. If they're going to talk over the network, then what it's trying to find out is a at least an IP address and in the containerized environment we, what you tend to do is give every container its own IP address on a container network so the port number can be hard coded the other way of doing it if if you don't have containers if you don't have that idea of an IP per service people get into port mapping so they you know if they if they need to run two or three things that would all otherwise run on let's say port 80 they need to map them. Maybe they map them to 81, 82, 83. And now they need some kind of way of finding out, oh, I mapped this one to port 84. So that's a, that's a function that gets labeled service discovery. If you're working in that kind of a way, then your, your central means of figuring out which port a particular thing is listening on is your service discovery mechanism. In the container space, give every container its own IP address. You really don't need to worry about ports. DNS can do both, but the way that it does ports is is in uh, SRV records. That's, a, that's quite a rare beast, not really used. Certainly not common to find client software that can deal with an SRV record. And so, uh, so it's very much easier to work in a container mode where the only thing you want to look up is the IP address. And then you can use regular DNS. You know, you send in a name, and it sends back an IP address. And everybody knows how to do that. You know, everybody speaks DNS already.
0: Yeah, straightforward That's A, or quad A record lookup. Yeah.
2: Basically, there's there's no there's no heavy lifting involved. You can assume that that sort of technology is a well understood and B somewhere within the software stack. Why reinvent the wheel? And that makes sense to me.
1: There are a few kind of gotchas in in that world. Typically, things may be calling DNS too often, which can slow you down or, or not enough. If the software calls DNS once at startup and never again, then you, you can't get that benefit of being able to shut down on one machine and wake up on another machine. You know, Like I was saying, the kind of cloud-native style doesn't work unless you do re-query somehow. So in point of fact, uh, Kubernetes, for instance, uses yet another mechanism layered on top to, um, to avoid worrying about that. But it, yeah, it's... You've got to have some way of getting from your client to your service in this world where you've got many of each.
0: I thought Brian compartmentalized what orchestration engines are all about by saying, well, they really control what runs where. That's the problem that orchestration engines are solving for you. In other words, you don't have to think about it so much. You need to have the infrastructure supply the infrastructure to that orchestration engine. And the orchestration engine is going to figure out the rest. Okay, I'm going to run these containers on these hosts and so on and you don't have to worry about that so much which in a dynamic ephemeral sort of uh, application which is what you're ending up with 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 microservices a lot of times that's that's critical you got to have that what runs where love it something that I thought was interesting that Brian said was that you don't have to fully go down the path of
2: completely breaking apart your monolith into a suite of microservices you know I was, I was actually fascinated to hear that there may be a point where you're like okay I have microservices for the various bits that I need you know the non-stateful, ephemeral type pieces of the workload that I need to scale and whatnot, and I have this core, I'm saying, of, of monolithic software somewhere else, and, and that that may be okay. It, it makes sense to kind of pluck the low-hanging fruit in that case.
0: Brian, we've got a good intro to what microservices are, a bit about how they work and uh, what my world looks like if I'm beginning to break up my monolithic app into microservices and how those services find each other and so on. This is a show that's for infrastructure engineers, people that are building infrastructure. I want to understand how microservices affect those folks. So can you maybe at a high level encapsulate what's different for infrastructure engineers if they're used to supporting a traditional environment, but now they're supporting a, a microservices environment?
1: Yeah. At the level of infrastructure, I don't have I don't have too much changes really. The typical thing that you need is a standardized platform on which, you know, Linux platform or whatever that you're going to deploy and run your services on. At the next level up, when you're you're operating the application, it, it certainly makes a difference because you need to maybe track down things that have gone wrong across multiple services, across multiple machines. So for instance, you get into wanting to collect logs from multiple machines and correlate them. You You probably want your clocks to be well-synchronized so that when you're looking at those multiple logs, you can look from one line in the log to the next and kind of believe the timestamps and, and see what happened in what order. But yeah, a few things like that come to mind, but at the the lowest level of putting together networks and, you know, a CPU compute platform, I don't think that really changes much in a in a microservices environment.
0: Is there much that would change with managing my local infrastructure that I own versus uh, public cloud infrastructure specifically?
1: Well, yeah. I mean the the whole thing about about cloud is that you don't manage the infrastructure, right? You.
0: Oh, <laughs> well, yeah. Well, we've had that argument on this show before. I mean, right? You don't, but you do. I mean your your point of operation and and so on changes. Yeah. You know, but when you're getting into that private cloud and and public cloud mashed up infrastructure, does microservices specifically really impact that? thinking or introduce new concerns that as the infrastructure engineer i gotta care about
1: well one thing comes to mind I, i've i've spent quite a bit of the last three years working on a uh, container network from from my employer and um so what I, what I said earlier about giving each container its own ip address those ip addresses have to route somehow across the network and you introduce public private you know hybrid operation or or just just trying to do that just trying to Route hundreds or maybe even thousands of container IP addresses from anywhere to anywhere. That might be a little bit of a challenge. That's kind of why we um, built a software network to to make that simple. It can be done in in your uh, regular network, but that that is possibly going to going to be a point of excitement for some infrastructure engineers trying to trying to fit container networking <laughs> and trying to fit ephemeral um, IP addresses, things that come and go at the the rate of every few minutes into your uh, networking domain, uh, that might be a challenge. Are you excited about that, Ethan? Yeah, I like the way
0: you said point of excitement, Brian. (laughs) That's pretty funny.
2: (laughs) Excitement is usually not a word I want to use in the data center. Uh, But but thinking of of microservices kind of from a maintenance perspective, I don't know, where my head's at is kind of like when vMotion was introduced to the virtualization space via VMware, it made infrastructure maintenance super easy because I could migrate workloads from one hypervisor host to the next and do do physical-level maintenance. Is this also kind of added to the pot with microservices? Does it make infrastructure-level maintenance simpler? Because I can kind of shoot a microservice and, and stand up another one somewhere else, and it's kind of like migratory workloads?
1: Right, yeah. We have this phrase that you want to treat them as cattle, not pets. If you haven't heard that phrase, the point is that pets are, are things you, you care for, or you give them names, you get very upset if they die cattle you know you expect them to die and you get another one so you treat your services that way with the exception of the things that are storing your state you know i talked earlier you pick a store you know maybe you've decided to use postgres for some or all of your storage so those postgres instances are pets you really need to look after them you can't just shoot them you know, you, you need to know where they're running. You need to know where their storage is attached. If you want to move them from one place to another, it has to be done with care. So what it does is it focuses down. You might have 100 pieces running, but the storage is maybe only three of them, and you really have to care about those stateful pieces. Everything else, yeah, if you if you want to do some maintenance, just, just shoot it. You know, Netflix, who are... Um, great pioneers in this whole microservice way of working they built the thing called chaos monkey and what what that does is it deliberately shoots parts of your infrastructure and the reason they did that was to make sure their failovers were working it's kind of a kind of a extreme I, I saw you could download approach. that
2: too i've i've thought about releasing it in my home lab but it would last probably 8 seconds <laughs> and then die so i'm having this vision of like this giant herd of cattle Kind of grazing along in the data center, and then every so often you see a cat, kind of you know <laughs> drinking from a saucer of milk. It's like, well, we, that's protected. That's that's Postgres cat. Don't yeah. don't mess with that. And that that makes sense.
0: Brian, you were mentioning uh, ephemerality. I'm I'm going to assume that's a word. Uh, ephemerality, the ephemeral nature of of microservices, where you could have a container come online, do some work, and then go away. Very short life cycle. Okay, this fascinates me because most of us uh, as infrastructure engineers have worked on a very pet-oriented environment where everything is carefully cared for, and now you don't have that. And how does that impact our thinking in in a whole lot of different areas? Uh, One would be uh, security models. I mean, I'm used to building, say, a set of firewall rules or access control lists or putting in security mechanisms that uh, are are protecting a predictable infrastructure. How is security impacted when I've got an ephemeral infrastructure? Mm.
1: Well, so, so one answer to that is that you you need a dynamic security mechanisms. You need uh, things that, that are maybe responding to metadata, to labels, let's say, on the services so that you know this is part of my front end, this is part of my middle tier, this is part of my back end. The only things the outside world should talk to is the front end, the only things the that should talk to the back ends, the middle tier, those kind of rules can't nowadays in this kind of cloud native world, you can't write those rules in terms of fixed IP addresses. You need to write them in terms of of metadata that I I know these six things are part of my front end and these eight things are part of my back end and I need to manage my firewall rules that way.
0: You're talking about grouping. I mean, effectively, you're you're doing you're building a group, and then you're making sure that as a new uh, container comes online, there's some bit of metadata that's going to identify that container as being a part of that group, and therefore it's subject to those security policies.
1: Yeah, I think I think really that's that's one way that it can work, and that's the way I'm part of the, the Kubernetes uh, special interest group for networking, and and that's that's sort of the the spec that they put together for basically a distributed firewall that runs within kubernetes The the kubernetes network policy defines that and uh, it's not it's not perfect it's a work in progress really but that's kind of the way things are going i think in this in this environment is dynamic security mechanisms to respond to to dynamic infrastructure the other thing i guess is the old perimeter defense you know if you um if you think about what we were talking about, moving from a monolith to, to microservices, then, then whatever protections you had around your monolith, you can probably still have around all your microservices. That mode of thinking still works just on a on a kind of a bigger scale that you put draw a draw line around everything. There are people thinking about this dynamic way of doing those those rules, and there are some implementations. worked on one myself. That is, I think, a, a challenge, Worrying about the attack surface, worrying about now you've got many, many more processes running. Can somebody get into one of them and and leverage that ability to get across the rest of the system? They, these are all valid concerns.
0: Although uh, it, it sort of feels like the ephemeral nature might be an advantage in that if it's only going to last for a couple of minutes, that's a pretty short window for someone to compromise that workload and then be able to leverage it as a jump off point for other things.
2: Yeah, like that on spaghetti. True, yeah. You know, it's like it's so <laughs> shifty. You
1: know? Yeah, I, I hadn't really thought about that, but it's, it's exactly right. It's uh, I, I've certainly experienced that trying to debug a system, log into some part of it, start looking around, it disappears. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so let's move from security to the networking model, Brian, um, because that that's another thing where obviously, you know, it's not like every time you stand up a container, you're going to talk to Bob, who's got the spreadsheet with the IP addresses and get an assignment. It's all got to happen dynamically. And then you've got connectivity. You've got to, you know, not just have something as straightforward as an IP address assignment. You've got to be able to connect to whatever it is you're allowed to connect to. How is the networking model uh, affected in a microservices ephemeral kind of environment?
1: That piece is, is more mature than there are quite a number of of solutions in the market like i say my employer has one weave net there are some very well known ones like calico flannel you don't need to use one of these product solutions if somehow bob with the spreadsheet can um, work with you to uh, carve out some ranges or some automation or you know you can you can do it uh, a dozen different ways and there's there's like 50 different product offerings out there in the in the container networking space that those things will, pretty much all of them will do dynamic management of IP addresses. They will get your containers talking across multiple machines. Then the features vary as to whether they do encryption, you know, whether they support different network features, whether they're layer two, layer three. There's a hundred different differentiation points once you get into that market. There's certainly a bunch of them out there.
0: And from an infrastructure engineering perspective, it's the you know, the idea is you're handing over a lot of the provisioning responsibility to a tool that's going to do that for you dynamically in accordance with some set of policy that you're going to set up to define how this is intended to work.
1: yeah, that's right. The policies tend to be less mature that that area is kind of growing and even less mature is is people would like to be able to say something like I want to give my developers." my engineers freedom to to define things about the way the application works i don't want it to always go through network security you know and it's a it's a 3 week turnaround or whatever they they'd like to do that but but they'd like to have that in a tiered way so they um so the developers have permissions up to a point when those permissions are always subject to higher level rules that are put in place by the admins so that's an example of a point to which we're probably not at that point right now in uh, the tools that I'm aware of,
0: what does storage look like when you're dealing with microservices? This is another one of those that I look at and go, "Ah, maybe this goes back to pets versus cattle a bit."
1: well, so the first thing is you try you try not to do storage as much as possible you You try to have your microservices just do a do a function without holding state and then you you concentrate the things that are storing into some bit of software, whether it's Postgres or console or
0: Cassandra, you know, some some sort of bit of in other words, you're not writing to disk, you're writing to a database that is writing to disk.
1: Yeah, so yeah, so I wanted to kind of divide the answer into two parts. A lot of your software is gonna be completely oblivious of, of what the storage is. A few parts of your system are gonna to want to write to disk. So at that point you need some kind of a volume manager, generally. There are plugins for your own infrastructure. Or in the cloud, you know, you can request uh, Amazon EBS or what, whatever kind of storage volumes. That, that's kind of how it works. Basically, you you um, you look for a uh, component that's going to tie together the kind of volumes you can come up with in your storage and provide them as a as a volume mount to a container that's that's going to want some storage. Does that make sense?
0: It does. Yeah, it does. Uh and, and then for sake of time, let's let's move ahead. The last thing, uh, as far as microservices and the impact for an infrastructure engineer. How do you monitor this thing? So I mean, again, if it's pets, monitoring's great. If it's not pets anymore, how do I keep up with what's actually going on? How do I track performance? Know when things are going good versus going bad. Just have just have every
2: microservice right to S N M P, right? That's that's <laughs> even B two if you want, if you're feeling saucy. <laughs> so the 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 one thing the one thing you need is is the metadata
1: if if your system really only runs on three machines and you know exactly what they're doing and you can monitor those all day that's great if if it's running on 20 different machines and sometimes those machines come and go you need to have monitoring infrastructure that can be dynamic in that way and uh so there are there are systems that that have that capability i mean one one that i've we my employers have worked with a lot at weaveworks is is prometheus that's a that's an open source monitoring system and it has fantastic capabilities to attach labels to data so instead of knowing that it's on a particular machine and you're monitoring it there, you find it by its label you know it's the the user service it's the production user service versus the development user service. And everything is labeled. I don't want to talk tools specifically, but but anything in that space is going to want to tie into your service discovery mechanism so it knows when new instances come online, if you, if you scale up from having two of this thing to having six of them, you want to start monitoring those six as soon as you can. And if you're monitoring when things come and go, again, you want to tie that into the orchestrator
2: so that so that it knows how many there are supposed to be. So, so question on the, on, you know, going from two to six mm-hmm. uh, example, is the monitor kind of a bump in the wire and it's listening for that? Or are or the microservices or, or some part of the service discovery mechanism telling it, hey, there's now more, you should start monitoring these six things instead of these two?
1: Yeah, I guess, I guess that will depend according to the tool. The, the one that I'm really familiar with, Prometheus, it is listening for new things showing up and it works by going and asking periodically for the metrics so when new things come online they just start being monitored by the system and it's it's
2: fully automatic interesting cuz you know normally in the data center uh, the enterprise monitoring system has to be told like hey here's a new IP here's service credentials for it you know this is a thing you know, again the pet reference so I'm thinking mm. this is this is a lot more dynamic to be able to capture this. You got to some. It's obviously not a person saying, "Oh, there's a new microservice. Go track it at this IP and port." Like they, that'd be crazy. So that had to be something kind of intelligent and Borg-like, sitting in the data center or the cloud, kind of watching for that.
1: Well, yeah, this way of working, much more dynamic, has produced a new set of challenges and a, a new generation of tools that can meet those challenges.
0: Well, why don't we wrap up our discussion of microservices here? Brian, this has been a fantastic discussion. They didn't have a lot of questions, but I knew they were bigish questions. I just didn't know how long we were going to end up running. And we had no problem filling our time with great conversation here. So thanks very much for joining us. Now, Brian, are you social? Can people follow you on the internet? Maybe you have a Twitter account or you blog and you'd like to share that with people. Yeah,
1: certainly I'm on Twitter as uh, B-B-O-R-E-H-A-M. Most of my blogging tends to be on the the company blog, which is the the site Weave.Works. We do blog quite a lot there, quite a lot of microservices-related content, so check it out.
0: Yeah, I'll put in my own little plug for the Weaveworks blog, I've been following it for quite a while, and the articles are, I mean, yes, it's a corporate blog, so there's information about the product, but then there is also just great educational information if you're trying to keep up with what's new in the infrastructure world. A lot of very helpful and educational articles there that would be beneficial if you read them. And then uh, we've also got a site link here, microservices.io, Brian?
1: Yeah, I I thought that's quite a good jumping-off point, that is uh, kind of a patterns uh, Chris Richardson owns that site and it's like a pattern language for microservices he's tried to group together certainly a lot of a lot of links to other material it's a great single jumping off point that's pretty easy to find.
0: Excellent. Again, that's microservices.io. And thanks to you for listening today. That is it for today's edition of the Data Nots Podcast. You can reach Ethan, that would be me, at ECBanks on Twitter. And I have a blog, EthanCBanks.com. And at PacketPushers.net, you can find most of my tech content. You can digitally probe Chris at Chris Wall on Twitter. And his blog is WallNetwork.com. For more of our Data Knot shows about infrastructure engineering, nosedive down the rabbit hole that is packetpushers.net. You will find the Data Knots there talking about containers and conferences, certifications, PowerShell, moving to cloud, full stack engineering, storage architecture, and so much more. Until then, may your server lights blink, your microservices respond quickly, and your cables be cleanly managed.
2: Section two there we go full scatter brain
0: <laughs> I'm eating birthday donuts leave me alone birthday I have priorities. donuts.